Hello, and welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have as our guest today, Michael Meta Webster, is that right, Michael? Great, great. And uh, his book is The Rescue Effects. Uh, and it also has a minor source, if you'd like to tell us what that is. Are you talking about the secondary title? Yes. So the secondary title, title is The Key to Saving Life on Earth. There you go. Um, that's important, you know. <laughs> it is. on that. <laughs> Um, you know, the, your, your book, I've, I've stole information from a lot of these reviews that you're getting, and uh, they are plentiful, I would say that, uh, which means you're doing well, and if nothing else, you're getting their attention. <clears throat> I think that uh, um, the book dives deeply into stories of, of species and ecosystems that are adjusting to our changing world. That was one of the comments. Um, and I have a question for you. Is our mass extinction or is mass extinction inevitable? Um, I, as a, I have to think of how exactly to answer that question. I think what you're getting at is, is it necessary that humans are going to cause uh, a, you know, a large fraction of the different kinds of life on earth to go extinct? And the answer to that's no. If you, if you look at what's happened already, there have certainly been extinctions and we've lost some amazing species uh, uh, you know, on our planet. Um, but at this point in time, it's a very, very small fraction of the different species that are out there, you know, a tiny fraction of 1% um, that we've lost to date. And so I think one of the things that was a, a, one of the more optimistic conclusions that I reached in doing the research for this book is that if we're thinking about sort of this extinction crisis that we are creating as a species, um, we're really looking at it from the very beginning right now. And that means that there's a ton we can do if we want to uh, really avoid going further down that road. We have a lot of options. We have a lot of agency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I bet. What, uh, what do you, this, I'll throw a wild one out there. Are we gonna get very far past uh, Russia and Ukraine before the world ends? How's that? <laughs> I certainly believe so. I don't think that the world is coming to an end anytime soon. Um, uh, and, you know, certainly nature is not coming to an end anytime soon. You know, the, the title of the book is The Rescue Effect. And the, the reason I gave it that title is what I'm talking about there is the ability of nature to uh, recover after disturbances, to adjust to new conditions. And it's actually a really powerful part of nature. Nature is really good at dealing with change. And there are all these mechanisms that are built in, uh, sort of automatically turn on when the environment begins to change. And so, you know, humans certainly are incredible at changing the planet. And we've done it in so many different ways in a geological scale, very short period of time. So far, most forms of life are in the process of adjusting to those changes rather than succumbing to them. Right. 
Well, it's um, there's a there's a lot of definitions and information here. Um, you've got six, at least six, I should say, different processes contribute to the rescue effect. Um, I'd rather you pick one or two, or you can do all six. It's up to you. Sure, and the idea there is that it, you know my background is I'm an ecologist. Um, I'm a biologist, and so I study organisms and ecosystems. It's been my uh, my work historically, and so when I started thinking about what's going to happen in the future with the diversity of life on Earth, part of me went back to sort of okay, what are the options that species have to be able to adjust uh, what they're doing to be able to live under different conditions? And so um, what you're getting at are sort of that list of different things that go on in biology that help organisms adjust. You know, one of them is a really sort of straightforward um, uh, process that anyone can uh, sort of relate to. All organisms have the ability to live in different kinds of conditions. You look at, you know, even people, for example, you know, most of us don't live particularly at particularly high elevation. Most people live, you know, at sea level or within a few thousand feet above sea level. But if we go up into the high mountains, our bodies automatically recognize that we are in a different kind of environment and our physiology begins to adjust. Things like our breathing and uh, our, you know, behavior in terms of where we stop, you know, running, we walk more slowly, we take our time, and our blood begins to change to, you know, produce more hemoglobin to draw more oxygen out of the thin air at high elevation. That isn't something you have to ask your body to do. It isn't something you have to think about. It's one of those things that is turned on automatically um, uh, uh, just because the environment has changed around you. And what, what's going on there in, in scientific terms, that's a change in, in your phenotype is the word that a scientist would use to describe that. And a phenotype is just sort of your physiology, your appearance, the genes that are on versus off in your body at any given time. And we have all these different genes in our body and we don't use all of them at all times. Our body selects, oh, it looks like I need that one now. I'm gonna turn that on for this new set of conditions. So all organisms can do this. They can, they can move from one habitat to another or they can live in slightly different temperatures or uh, different conditions. And they've got tools built in for being able to deal with some of those changes. As our world is changing so quickly, and as we think of things like climate change, this ends up being one of the first lines of defense for organisms. They begin to change their phenotype in response to the environment that uh, is changing around them. Some organisms can change their phenotype a lot. Some of them can only change it a little bit, but all can do it somewhat. And it's one of those things that kicks in to help deal with a changing world. I can, I can attest in, in an experience I had once upon a time, about 30 years ago or so, we, we moved from Texas to um, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And we lived in Breckenridge, ran a ski, ski, uh, ski school and ski lodge. Um, <clears throat> what I noticed right away is that all that training I had done over time, it was gone. I, there was nothing there. I was trying to do tri triathlons up there. It was easier to go the other way. But my guess is that, you know, it, it didn't take that long. I think it's about three weeks to completely adjust. 
But after about a week or two, you probably were feeling a lot better. You're probably starting to get your, you get your legs back and, and your, and because your physiology was shifting in response. And then after that, you should have been just fine. Well, it took me a little longer, but little longer. Uh, yeah, because again, I, I was trying to, you know, train as much as I could, but I have to smack my cheek in the mirror, you know, slow down, slow down. And, yeah. and, and that was, that was true, true, true. Um, the sixth rescue efforts effects. What do I want to say? Effort. It's an effort. It's an effect. Uh, is one or two of these one of your champions? Are they uh, remarkable more than the other? It's really not. And here's the interesting thing. So in the book, I talk about um, different stories, stories about different organisms and different places. Um, and really look at what's happening to them in their environment. You know, there's a there's a chapter about corals in the Caribbean. There's a chapter about a little um, marsupial that lives in the mountains of Australia. There's a chapter about tigers in India. And if you start looking at for any one of these organisms or places, there's a whole bunch of different things that are changing in their environment at the same time. And in response, what what's going on for every one of these organisms is that um, sort of a, a, a a cocktail of different um, processes are turning on simultaneously. It's not just one, it's this, you know, one plus two plus three plus four. And collectively, all of those different things that are turning on are helping the organism to adjust. So one is the like changes in the phenotype or the physiology that we were just talking about. You know, in some cases, organisms are actually moving from one location to another. This is especially an issue with climate change as you know, average temperatures change or um, precipitation changes in one place, an organism might find that it actually doesn't um, do as well where it has lived, you know, its ancestors have lived for hundreds of years. But you might find, you know, for like a tree species in North America that it might be doing really well at the northern edge of its range and maybe not as well at the southern end of its range. Well, as more seeds are produced, those seeds might fall further and further north and you might see that tree species moving up further northward in latitude. And what's happening there is that the range is shifting for that organism as the climate around it is shifting. Now we know that organisms have done this in the past. For example, during the last ice age, a lot of North America was covered under you know, miles thick glaciers that scraped the ground all the way down to bedrock. When the glaciers retreated, things like lakes were formed, which captured sediments. I and mean, you can look at the sediments in the bottom of the lake and see, well, what was living there at different times in the past, if you drill it down like a tree core. And what you can see is that different species sort of moved through a region as the ice was retreating and, you know, progressively moved further and further north. And so we know that species do this sort of movement as their environment changes. In that case, it was changing because of the end of the last ice age. Now it's changing because our climate's getting warmer and warmer, and those same kinds of mechanisms are getting triggered. But for an organism that's going to progressively move to a new place, um, having other tools like being able to adjust its physiology along the way to deal with smaller changes in the environment, that's really, really helpful. And so in that case, those two different processes, moving to a new location and adjusting your physiology, are going to work hand in hand to make it successful as it's dealing with sort of these broader environmental changes. Well, that's the amazing part of this, uh, as I view it in my, my simpleton view. Uh, it's, it's one which uh, sometimes my tenacity is something that um, you were an academic and probably still are a scientist at Cornell. 
Yeah, I visited at Cornell last year. So I was there for one year. And my current position, um, I'm a, a professor in the Environmental Studies Department at uh, New York University. Uh huh. And you've got Oregon State here as well? I did my PhD at Oregon State and stayed to do some research after that. Yeah, my expertise is in coral reefs. So I wrote my PhD thesis on coral reefs and how coral reefs work. And, you know, coral reefs are one of probably one of the most threatened ecosystems on the planet. And in some ways, they were the inspiration for this book, because um, I don't know if you've heard anything about coral reefs, but if you see stories in the newspaper, usually they'll talk about things like coral bleaching or declines in coral reefs. The news is largely bad news. And the reason that this is happening is that, you know, one of the main reasons is that uh, the world is getting warmer on land. The water is also getting warmer. And corals, they're these funny animals that grow um, rocky skeletons and build reefs. Um, they're very sensitive about temperature. And as the world is getting warmer, it's causing them a lot of stress. And in some cases, they're dying. And so we've had this question working on coral reefs of, are corals going to actually be able to survive climate change? Or are we destined to lose coral reefs on the planet? So some of the research that I've done recently has really looked at whether or not corals may be able to adjust to changing temperatures. And part of that would be changing their physiology. But one of the really big questions on corals is, can they actually evolve new capabilities? Um, and can they do that quickly enough to keep pace with how fast the environment is changing? And so I've worked with other scientists to sort of you know, use scientific tools and models to, to, to try and figure this out. And uh, the answer we've largely come up with is we think they can, so long as um, we you know, begin to slow down climate change over time, um, we think corals may actually be able to evolve their way out of the problem that we've created for them. And that's a really big deal because it means that, you know, maybe a hundred years from now or 200 years from now, we'll have corals that can survive in reasonably different conditions than they can today because of evolution happening on a short time frame. Well, you lived an interesting life. I can say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my, and my wife's going to smack me if I don't tell everybody in the world that she's a Cornell engineer. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, um, well, I, I genuinely enjoyed my year at Cornell. It was a wonderful place to be. Yeah. Um, let's see. There are some things in here that I believe um, struck my interest. And I think it was a matter of the, uh, the books themselves about how they are... <clears throat> stories of species and ecosystems that are adjusting to our changing world. Um, and a lot of times when I'm talking to people, I, I just don't get it. You know? um, but a lot of times I do. It's, it's, it's amazing depending upon what you hang your hat on and what you know. Yeah, I think that's right. And part of my goal in writing this book, the way that I approach writing this book is you know, I've written plenty of scientific papers and talked with plenty of scientists before, but I was interested in trying to get to a different audience and talk with people who maybe are interested in nature and maybe concerned about nature, but aren't necessarily going to read, you know, the, the scientific journals. And one of the ways to, to sort of understand what's going on in these systems that's, I think, more approachable for a lot of people is to actually couch it within stories. So like one of the chapters in the book, I mentioned it earlier, is about this funny little marsupial that lives in mountains in Australia. And these, these little guys hibernate in the wintertime. And um, it's an unusual place in Australia because there's lots of snow in the wintertime. 
And so these guys burrow under the snow and they wait it out until spring comes. And right. they, you know, they presumably have been doing this for thousands and thousands of years in this kind of environment. And it turns out that the snow paradoxically keeps them warm because it creates an insulating layer on top of their little burrow. And so they can you know, eat over the summer, get fat, they can store some food and they can make it through the winter and get to the spring. But with climate change, there's less and less snow in these mountaintops. And what that means is the insulation layer is disappearing for these little guys. And because it's getting warmer, they're more likely to freeze to death. And it's this weird paradox about of uh, because it's really the loss of insulation because of the loss of snow. And so this species actually is at very high risk of going extinct. And it raises this sort of social question of, well, what should we do about that? You know, there's obviously reasons for us to want to slow down and, and stop climate change, but that's not going to happen fast enough to save this species. What do we choose to do in the meantime? Do we just let it go extinct um, or do we try and intervene in other ways? There's a group in Australia that is contemplating taking some of these little organisms and moving them to another place where they think they might be able to survive um, so that if they go extinct on the mountaintops, they still live somewhere on the planet. But doing so means taking a new species and introducing it to a different ecosystem. And we can never know all the consequences of that. Is it gonna cause something bad to happen? And so it creates this interesting public conversation about, well, what should we be doing here? Should we be moving things around? Should we be trying to keep them the same? Should we let them go extinct? And there's no right answer to any of these questions, but uh, I think it's really important for people to be um, sort of asking those questions and using a story about a particular species helps make it much more real. I, I agree with that. And it, that's what kind of gives me an idea about what I'm doing and what I'm learning and how it's going to come, out, come about. Um, actually, when I do an interview like I do now, I, I go through, I'm a table of contents guy. And, and that basically says, why did you say this chapter with, with this particular phrase? Uh, <laughs> well, you want to ask me a table of contents questions for my book? Anything catch your eye in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's start at the beginning. So, what a son of Panna. Son of Panna. So um, that chapter is about a tiger. Um, the son of Panna was, a, was an individual tiger. And he was a really interesting tiger because... Um, uh, I actually encountered this tiger on a trip to India. Uh, I got to see it in the wild, an amazing, majestic, extraordinary creature. And um, I just learned a little bit about it while I was there. And when I came back and was working, writing the book, I started like, doing research into the backstory of this one particular tiger. And it was really kind of a fascinating backstory. It turns out that this tiger came from a park in India called Pana. Um, and um, he was the, the grand cub of a group of tigers that had been captured elsewhere and introduced to that park. The problem was that poachers had removed every last tiger from that park. They'd hunted them out to sell um, uh, illegal wildlife um, products. And the managers in India were like, wow, we need to fix this. So they went to the nearby parks. They um, tranquilized some tigers. They, they you know, moved them to the new park. They let them go and hoped that they would survive. And they actually did survive quite well. And they had lots of offspring. They had so many offspring so quickly that within those sort of three generations, the park was already starting to get crowded. And so this um, son of Pana, um, uh, the, the, in Hindi he's Pana Lal, 
um, uh, he grew up in this park. And when he was, you know, the tiger equivalent of a teenager, he started to look for his own territory and he decided to leave the park. And he ended up walking across about a hundred miles of like ag lands, highly densely populated with people. I mean, imagine, imagine this, like, you know, working in your field and seeing a tiger ambling across through, through your crops. And this would be an absolutely terrifying experience for people. And the tiger managed to walk this hundred or miles or so and find an entirely new different park. And he's like, oh, this is great. I'm gonna set up shop here. And when I saw him, he'd already made that big journey. Now, the important part of this from a biological perspective is a couple fold. One, left to their own devices, the tigers that were reintroduced to that park populated it really quickly. Tigers are actually really good at growing their population size very quickly. And they can also move from one park to another, which means that if another park is having fewer tigers, then they can be connected to each other. And a few tigers moving this way or that way in each generation actually makes all of the parks healthier. You know, parks can get sort of isolated in space, especially when there's like agricultural lands all around them. Um, and that's not necessarily good for the animals. Having a few animals that move from one place to another can do a lot to make the parks healthier. And so this one individual tiger was really interesting because he basically exemplified how we hope parks will work, which is that we can protect animals within them, but that they can also then move between those different parks. Right. I learned that uh, just reading early part here that the country of India controls, I believe, um, tigers. They have law there to protect tigers. Tigers, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and most countries that have tigers still do have laws to protect them. It doesn't necessarily mean that the laws are followed. Tigers used to be across a whole giant swath of um, different parts of Asia. Um, today, I think the estimate is that their current populations are in about 7% of where they used to live. So they've lost sort of 93% of the habitat they used to live in. And a lot of that's been from development and growth of human populations. And so what's left are these little pockets where tigers can still be found in places like Russia and China and Thailand, um, uh, Malaysia. Um, uh, and a lot of those populations are really small. India has the world's most tigers right now. Um, the last set of estimates that I saw were that India has about three quarters of the world's tigers. And India's populations of tigers have actually been growing pretty rapidly. Um, part of the reason is that, you know, issues like I was talking about earlier with poaching, India has done a pretty good job of trying to curtail some of that poaching through things like enforcement. Um, and as a result, you know, if you can create a space for tigers to live, um, they, uh, their populations tend to go up pretty quickly if they're, if they're not being, you know, shot or killed by people in other ways. Right. You know, the, my, uh, the virtual assistants, uh, from, we get from Mac who started us out here on this conversation. He's from India. So oh. I'll have to ask him about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and let's go to, to number two, and it reminds me of me. It says an irresistible urge. Uh, so that, that chapter is about salmon. And the irresistible urge part is about the point in a salmon's life when it decides to go back to the stream that it came from to spawn. So salmon are funny creatures because they, um, they start their life in streams or lakes um, they are buried as eggs by their parents in the gravel. And then sometime later they hatch and they eventually move their way downstream into the ocean. 
But then at some point in their life, they decide, you know what, it's time to go back. And they start this, this voyage where they're mostly trying to get back to exactly the same place where they started as an egg. They've only mm -hmm. ever been there once and they have to figure out how to navigate that, um, that pathway to get there. Um, and salmon are especially interesting because in doing so, they create a, a really interesting set of fisheries where the fisheries, most fisheries for salmon are um, trying to intercept them when they're coming back. And so it creates this challenge in fisheries management of how do you catch some of the fish, but let enough of the fish back to go back to the gravel to spawn the next generation. Right. And the story there is about a place called Bristol Bay in Alaska, which has arguably the most sustainable modern salmon fishery that we know of, where fishers in that system have been catching, you know, on the order of half of the fish that return every single year since the late 1800s. And today, in fact, last summer had uh, one of the highest returns of salmon ever to that population. And so it's really interesting that if you imagine half of their population has been caught every year for more than a century, and yet they're doing as well or better than they ever have. And what's going on there is um, a trick of biology that usually what happens to species is that when they get really, really crowded, um, they tend not to have as many offspring or not as many of their offspring survive. But if you thin them out a little bit, their reproductive rates will often go up. And that's how a lot of fisheries work. And so in that fishery, what the fishery does is it actually removes some of the individuals, makes the system less crowded, which means those that are lucky enough to get to spawn, they're much more likely to have more offspring that survive and make it back. In fact, usually for a fish that spawns in a stream or a pair of fish that's to try and spawn in there later in life. So the population size would be growing exponentially, except the fishery keeps catching the extra ones and keeping them from going upstream. Paul, oh, this is so interesting. Uh, <laughs> the way you lay it out and the depth that you get in, get a guy like me interested in it. Um, I'll have to put it this more, I guess, some more. Um, and we're running out of time. Oh, dear, so already? Ask, yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you if you um, would uh, give my audience, my listeners, uh, information on where your books are. And sure. It's the, go ahead, please. So just to repeat, the book is called The Rescue Effect. And it is, uh, should be on sale. Certainly you can get it online without any problem whatsoever at big sellers like Amazon, et cetera. Um, uh, but you can also look at your local bookstore. Um, some of them, many of them are carrying it. And if they're not, you can ask the uh, manager of the bookstore to uh, um, get some in stock. Yes. Now, before I give you my, my famous adios, I have one more time. Chapter four, A Babe in the Woods. What's that? The babe in the woods is the American chestnut tree, which is a species of tree that was really important in the Eastern US um, more than a hundred years ago, but uh, declined dramatically due to an accidentally introduced disease which attacked all the trees. As far as we know, every sort of above ground uh, thing that you would call a tree died in that process. But some of the roots survived and they keep growing from those roots. That chapter is about the century long effort to try and bring that species back through a combination of selective breeding, 
of hybridizing trees with other species of chestnuts from different parts of the world to most recently creating a genetically modified um, American chestnut tree that is better than anything we've seen before in its ability to fight this new disease. And so it may be that the American chestnut is no longer going to be a babe in the woods. It may be able to survive going forward because of all these efforts to try and bring it back. That's good news. Very good news. <clears throat> well, let me thank you for being a, on my show. It's a, it's a different show. And I like to see that people like it. And uh, I'm glad that you came aboard to let the, all my listeners know that they didn't know as much as they thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, what I would say to your listeners is give the book a try. I, hopefully I've made these stories super engaging so that I can suck you mm -hmm. in on the story and maybe you'll learn a little biology along the way. Of course. And I want to thank my listeners for tuning in to Searching for Integrity. Um, so long and happy trails to all. <laughs>